Welcome to the Hoops Royalty Podcast. I'm King Jemison alongside Karna Venkatrage, and this is an NBA Finals edition where we are going to, of course, be bringing you Royals Hoop Takes live from the 901, but in this case, those Hoops Takes are going to be centered around the NBA Finals. And Karna, today is a big show because, believe it or not, we have a series. The Miami Heat won Game 2 in Denver, 111-108, to with a huge fourth quarter. They scored 29 points in a crazy 7-minute, 7-second start to the fourth quarter, and that turned an 8-point deficit entering the period to an 11-point lead. Now, they ultimately survived a Nuggets comeback in the final minutes as Jamal Murray missed a potential game-tying three-pointer at the Horn. Was it a great look? Was it not? Should Mike Malone have called timeout? Was he right to let them play? We can discuss that later on. But, Karnam, you came on this podcast on Saturday and said this would be the most lopsided finals in history, either a sweep or possibly a gentleman's sweep by the Nuggets. How are you feeling about the prediction a couple days I later? I feel fine because the Heat played literally, a, other than the first 10 minutes, the Heat played a really, really good game. And that also was one of the worst games I've seen in a long time from the Nuggets role players. Um, so you're counting on two or three guys to completely go away like they did. We can, we're going we're gonna to hit it later. MPJ and, and KCP both had completely bad games, right? Bruce Brown wasn't super effective either when he needed to be. Now we're expecting all these role players that have really shown up throughout the season, right? And throughout the um, NBA uh, playoffs to suddenly just go away for more than one game at a time, I feel okay about my prediction. I said I weighted it 70% that it would be, or 70 or 80% that it would be 4-1 series. I'm going to stand by that prediction. Okay, so Karna is going to stand by that prediction. I'm going to give my prediction later in the show. But for right now, I actually have something else for you, Karna. I got a royal decree. Okay, okay. a royal decree based on this playoff run by the Heat. My royal decree is the Miami Heat are the best organization in the league. And let me, let me walk you through it. Just give me a second to hop on my soapbox. It's actually going to be more than a second. But it all starts with Pat Riley. He has been, as you've probably seen on Twitter this week, in 25% of all NBA finals as either a player, coach, or executive. And he's been with the Heat in some capacity since 1995. Okay. Before he got there, it was crazy when I, I looked this up today, but before he got there, the high water mark for the Heat was 42 wins and a first round loss. That's as good as they'd ever done in their very brief history to that point. Then he brought them to the playoffs six years in a row, but after two playoff list seasons, you know, he missed it a couple years in a row, he transitions to an executive role. Okay? And that's when things really took off. Since then, the Heat have won three NBA championships. They've been to the finals three more times. And the main crux of what has made this the best organization in the league is something that a couple years ago was frankly a meme, and that is Heat culture. Okay? It was a joke. People love to joke about Heat culture, and particularly when they backed up that 2020 run in the bubble with a very disappointing Um, and swift playoff exit in the first round in 2021. Well, Heat culture 
led to a lot of jokes. It's kind of like what the Grizzlies are going through right now, where everybody piled on because they could, okay? But here's the thing. Heat culture is real because Pat Riley stuck by his guy. A lot of people wanted Eric Spolstra out after the dramatic failure of the 2011 NBA Finals. It's crazy to say that losing in the Finals is a dramatic failure, but it was when you had LeBron, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh on the same team. Okay, and people thought Eric Spolstra was not ready. But thank God Pat Riley stood by him because Spo is now clearly the best coach in the NBA. There's not really much competition. And we know about his tactics, everything from zone defense um, to the ability to generate open shots for guys who can't really create their own shot. I mean, the X's and O's of how his team plays is incredible. But I think what's even more incredible is how he pushes players to be their best. Um, if you have not read it, go and read on The Athletic the article, The Zen of Eric Spolstra. And, or maybe I'm, I'm, it is about Eric Spolstra. It's from April. Maybe the Tau of Eric Spolstra? Hope I'm saying that correct. But it tells a lot of stories about how he pushes players. In particular, one anecdote about Josh Richardson stood out to me. It talked about how Josh Richardson was working out on a, on a day off. And he saw Eric Spolstra in the facility. And he thought, he's probably going to compliment me for coming in on my day off. Instead, Eric Spolster put him through like the hardest workout of his life. And that completely changed how he went about his business for the rest of his career. Turned him into a really solid role guy. Okay, And we see that same effect today when the Heat have seven undrafted guys on the main roster. And these guys are making big impacts. Even if you just look at Duncan Robinson, Max Struess, Gabe Vincent, and Caleb Martin... Each of those guys are undrafted. In the playoffs, they are combining for 108 minutes a game. That's an average of 27 each. And Vincent is playing almost 32 minutes a game. They are scoring 46 points per game combined. And most importantly, they're averaging nine made threes between the four of them. Again, that's Struess, Martin, Vincent, and Robinson. Okay, And they're all playing serviceable defense. In fact, I would say Gabe Vincent has been playing elite defense this postseason. He has the best on-off defensive rating on the team for a team that's playing incredible defense in the playoffs, okay? But for Future all four Grizzly of those guys... Vincent, you mean. Future Grizzly Gabe Vincent. Oh, I'm ready to hand him that MLE, okay? But, <laughs> but that's another story. But anyways, for each four of those guys, all four of them undrafted, so their athletic profile was not strong. And yet, they are all above-average defenders, according at least to their playoff metrics. Their on-off gets better. Duncan Robinson, we know about his question marks. But in the playoffs, he's been able to hold up. Okay? So all that to say, the Heat may not win this series, but even by making competitive, winning Game 2 in Denver, they've proven to be the best organization in the league, top to bottom. Karna, what do you think about this very long, but very strong, Royal Decree? I don't agree with you. <laughs> um, okay. I think it's overblown. I, okay, so this is what I'll say. Pat Riley's a genius. Eric Spolstra's a genius. I agree with both of those things, right? Like, these guys are basketball guys. They know what they're doing. That being said, other than Bam Adebayo, do you know who the last all-star that was drafted by the Heat? Do you know who it is? No, hit me. 2003, Dwayne Wade. They have wow. not drafted well. Justice Winslow, 2015 draft, is... They have not drafted well. They drafted him over Miles Turner and Devin Booker. I think 
in a lot of ways, the Heat are emblematic of a really, really positive trend in the NBA, right? They make do with what they have. They, their use and their evaluation of undrafted players has been great, especially evidenced through this season. However, they have had some serious mismanagement. If we look at contracts like Tyler Johnson's, Dion Waiter's contract, I think we forget about those, especially because we have a recency bias with Jimmy Butler's iteration of the Heat. But for there was a period in between the LeBron Heat, by the way, LeBron and Bosch, both instrumental in two out of those three championships, were not drafted by the Heat. They were free agents. And those were no-brainers, right? Like It's like a value talent evaluation of lebron's free agency contract doesn't require some sort of genius or some some (laughs) some sort of quantitative analysis that makes him the best player like you want him obviously every team was competing for him so it's like but they did have to convince him to take his talents to south beach that that does that's true right they had to convince him to come to south beach during the hottest the coldest months of the year that was tough i'm sure it was (laughs) no i agree with you that that in itself is evidence of, of a good organization but I think mismanagement in some free agent contracts, you can look at the Dragic contract too, or a free uh, trade, um, some serious draft mistakes like Justice Winslow. I can't call them the best. I do agree that they are a top-tier organization in the NBA, but I can't say they're the best. Would you like to know who I think is the best? And I'm going to hate to say it's going to it's gonna hurt my body to say it. It's the Warriors. They, it's the Warriors. It's obviously the Warriors. They drafted Steph, all-time shooter. They drafted Clay Thompson, probably the second or third best shooter of all time. Draymond Green was an excellent piece. They continue to draft well. And even when they don't, they unload them for picks. James Wiseman was a good example. Now, could they have done more with that? Um, but they cut they cut bait early. And I don't think he's going to be like a superstar in the league. So even their draft mistakes have turned into a great organization. Not to mention, this is all not to mention that the fact that they just completely changed the way basketball is played from the NBA level all the way down to the high school level. So it's like, I think they're the best organization right now in the NBA. They won the championship last year when no one thought they could because they were older. They still have staying power. Um, I think the Warriors are the best organization. It's annoying to say because you know, like watching game seven of that uh, Western Conference Finals almost ruined my life. But like, I think it's they're the best organization. It's, uh, not in sports, but uh, definitely um, in the NBA is the Warriors, in my opinion. It, it's hard to argue with that, given their success. You know, building their team from with from within, um, building their team through the draft, which is something the yeah. Grizzlies would like to emulate. Um, you know, the Grizzlies core three all drafted to like an addendum to your royal decree that makes sense, which is like, okay. The Heat, top to bottom, might not be the best organization, but Pat Riley is an all-time executive, for sure. Yeah. And Eric Spolzer is like a building block of this organization as well. So I, I think there's something to be said that they do things a little differently than the Warriors and, and other teams, right? Like, the Warriors relied very much on drafting right. Um, I think the... And having have, tons of money. And having tons of money, sure. But, like... Yeah, Kevin Durant, sure. If you that's a good counter argument is that they the Kevin Durant is a corollary to the LeBron um, free agency. But I think another argument to be said is like they do things just differently. It's not even better or worse to argue against myself. It's not better or worse. They just do things very differently. But I think what leans maybe towards my argument is the sustained success that that core has had 
before and after Kevin Durant has justified their the Warriors title being the best organization in the NBA. Um, Certainly yeah. the best dynasty if you if you're gonna run like an eight year window from 2015 to 2023, be hard to argue. But if you extend that window to 2011 to 2023 and you say that in that span the Heat have been to six finals with very different teams, that's what's impressive to me is that the Warriors never had to tear it down and build it back up. Well, the Heat did, and then, you know, less than 10 years later, they're back in the finals. But that's my point. The Warriors never had to tear it down. That's my point. It's like they just never had to tear it down, and I could see them being great until 2025, which is a decade of of dominance from an organization. So, like, I because think about it. The reason that the Heat had to tear this some of it down is because they drafted poorly, right? Like, they drafted Justice Winslow. They drafted who Dexter Pittman in 2010, which is – you know that's my guy he's a texas guy right like they've made some crucial mistakes they paid tyler johnson Dion waiters and brian grant <laughs> like they made some crucial mistakes when they didn't need to um well, so the warriors did draft james wiseman huh james wiseman was drafted by the golden state warriors so that's i think true. they've made I, some I, critical I, that's mistakes that's a rare too. miss that's a rare miss but even then they were able to offload that they were able to offload that pick this year for to the pistons like yeah. They don't. They didn't offer him a free agent contract for seven years, did they? Like, I don't know. I think this Duncan Robinson contract is also emblematic of like not a great free agent contract. What is it? Five well, years. Uh, absolutely, it's a terrible contract. But if you just look at the fact that he was an instrumental part of a 2020 Finals run, and now an instrumental part of a 2023 NBA Finals run, like. I know as a Grizzlies fan, like, if, if we signed a free agent who helped us get to two finals, like, I guess one of those finals, one of those finals came before this contract, but if we signed a guy for too much who then helped us get to the NBA finals, I'm not going to be too upset about it, particularly yeah, when I, he a was a huge argument. part of game seven, and he's a huge part of a finals victory. He's a huge part of a game two yeah. finals win, so... Can I agree. Also, and in that same time frame, I have another name for you. If we're going from yeah. 95 to now, um, sure. is the Spurs, obviously, right? Like yeah. Tony Parker, Manu, Tim Duncan, all drafted, all developed within their organization. I mean, sustained success over time. Kawhi Leonard developed in their organization. If you stop this run, they're like, huh? If you stop this run in 2014, it's not even close that it's the Spurs. I'm saying, okay, yeah. let's say for the for yeah. at this point, at this point, when you look at how the Warriors have faded and were not able to do the two timeline um, effectively enough to have a truly elite team this season, and you know they had some lost years with injuries, and you look at how the Spurs weren't able to just roll it right back into dominance after you lose the big three. Now maybe they will with Wimbenyana, but it's still going to take some time. At this point, I'm taking the heat over all other organizations because, man, they're taking lemons and turning it into lemonade. They they did make some mistakes. They did have some limitations due to their own poor drafting and, and poor free agency signings. And yet, they develop their players well enough and they find the right undrafted guys to put a team that's really around like one superstar, one... B B list star, you know, one all all star but not all NBA level player in Bam, and then they just fill in the rest with 
heat culture guys. Um, and whether that's more about their evaluation or about their development, I'm not sure. I'm not there every day. But whatever they're doing is is doing the most with what they have and that doing that better than anybody else in the league right but, now. But this is another point. is like their organization is very much their style, right? Where they're yeah. not impacting how other people optimize for their rosters, right? Whereas the Warriors... Their front office, and now they're losing a key component, right? They just lost their president of basketball operations, right? They they, they changed the way all sport, like all and basketball is played everywhere. So I think that like that functional change, right, and their ability to optimize for that change, and even when people are trying to copy them, they're still the best at it in a lot of ways, largely due to their drafting. I think that makes them one of the most influential front offices in any sport in any time frame is what I'm saying. Right? Can Absolutely. you name like can you name a, another time when a front office systematically changed the way the sport was played? Like I, I can't think of one in any sport other than the Oakland A's, right? Like if you want to buy the moneyball narrative and other teams weren't doing that at the same time, whatever, right? I think that the way that they substantively changed the the Warriors substantively changed how basketball is played automatically puts them over the top over the heat and then that and you combine that with sustained success within the organization but I, I see your point I think that there's merit to both I think it's just the way you look at it right the heat have yeah. their own culture whereas the Warriors in a lot of ways exported their culture to like every other team and their their style to every other team. So yeah. I think it just really depends on how you look and evaluate what an influential front office is or what a what a good front office is. Yeah. Last point and then I want to move back to this series, but the one thing I'll say, I I absolutely agree with you that the Warriors have had a far bigger impact on the rest of the league than the Heat have had. Um but two things there. Number 1, the Heat may be about to have a bigger impact with the new CBA, making it a lot harder, a lot tighter um, to maintain a roster with depth. You know, it's, you're going to need to find more diamond in the rough signings, more undrafted or second round picks, and and turn them into quality role players. So, whatever the Heat are doing in terms of their evaluation and development. You know, every team in the league should be calling those scouts, should be calling about those scouts and trying to get them into their organization because they're, you're going to need that. And then the second part of that is absolutely the Warriors changed the game, but I'm not sure I'm giving the front office much credit for that. I'm giving Steph Curry and Klay Thompson the credit for that because Dude, you, what changed the game... Someone has to tell Steph to shoot even when he's like no, a young No, that's true. Like, but the yeah. thing that changed the game was not their ability to to put those players on the court. It was what those players did once they were there. And I, I think that Steph is just so, such a unicorn, so unique, so historically great that like, yeah, they, they drafted him, that was amazing. Yeah. They unleashed him, that was amazing. But then all they really had to do was put the right team around him, which they did an excellent job of, and have enough money to keep those guys which they were lucky enough to do with an owner like Joe Lacob. So I love the Warriors' front office as well, and I think Bob Myers leaving is a great thing for the rest yeah. of the league. But um, I still like the way – I think the Heat's front office has a bigger impact on their success than the Warriors' front office 
did on theirs. That's a good point. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I, I personally disagree, but I, I can see where you're coming from there. Makes sense. Well, and let's get back to the series at hand. Heat Nuggets, I'm so glad that it is a series. I think after game one, we were all wondering, are the Nuggets just going to walk over them, and is this going to be a crowning? Where, you know, there's lots of narratives coming out about, like, where does Jokic rank in amongst all-time greats? How long can the Nuggets sustain this dynasty? And that's all fun. But what's more fun is to have great basketball to watch, you know, for hopefully seven games. But let's talk about it. So before game two, we did not get to our predictions before the series, but before game two, I said Heat in six. You said, or sorry, I'm going to back that up. Nuggets in six for me. You said Nuggets in four or five. You've already told us that you're not walking back your take, but how, if any, did game two impact your predictions for the series? And just talk us through what you expect to see, um, including adjustments. This is going to be, this is going to sound weird. Um, I mean, is Nuggets and Six more probable now? Probably, but you know I double down. You know there's no way um, I'm backing down, right? That's that's just not me. But I, I w- this is what I'll say. In a lot of ways, after watching Game 2, I felt a lot more confident about my prediction. And I'll tell you why. And I'll tell you why I'm more confident and why there's a counter-argument to my confidence. So let's start with why I'm more confident. The Heat played literally a perfect game, right? They hit shots when they need to. Max Struess went off. And the Nuggets had a pretty bad game. KCP has six points. MPJ has five points, right? Two role players that have been traditionally in double digits, at least, for the Nuggets, right? So I think you have an issue when you go 3-for-12 shooting. They looked bad. They looked bad. Aaron Gordon didn't look good. He oftentimes did not look as defensively staunch as we've seen him before. I think there's one really important time where he gets caught up on a screen from Max Struess, I believe, and Max Struess just buries a three-pointer. And I think those types of miscues don't happen twice for this team. So that's why I feel confident, right? The Nuggets have a really bad game. Their role players kind of shrink in big moments, and the Heat role players do the exact opposite right the counterpoint to this is that jimmy butler doesn't have an efficient game right he go i I forget what he goes but he had 16 points in the fourth quarter at 1.6 for 16 on shooting yeah Uh, he finished finished he finished with 21 points on 19 shots so yeah we talked about his okay yeah his 13 points on 14 efficient at all right yeah so I, i think the issue then becomes is like what do you expect to see in game three and game four at in Miami, right? I think the Nuggets, most likely this still goes to six, but that's, I'm still going Nuggets in five. <laughs> but I'm saying if the Nuggets role players show up these next two games, like I expect them to, three and four, they're going to, they're going to win games three and four. I just, I, I wow. believe if, if the role players show up, they're going to win games three and four. I expect Mike Malone to make the necessary changes. And I think one thing I didn't realize coming into the series, and, and this was very ignorant of me not to mention in the last podcast, but I think there's, and this is something you mentioned earlier, is there's a coaching battle going on here that I don't think we've seen in a lot of different um, finals before. 
a lot of series before. I think, you know, you see these two pretty solid tacticians pulling levers on role players because the stars are just stars, right? You optimize for their minutes, you optimize for their rest, and then that's just how you play them, right? But where you start to see the coaching kind of difference is the use of the role players. In game two, Spo outcoached Mike Malone in a lot of ways, right? I don't think that happens twice. Mm. I think there are times where he probably will get out coach quarters, but I don't think he's gonna I don't think that's gonna happen very often. Also, Jamal Murray had a bad game. I don't think that happens twice either. Um so I'm all in on the Nuggets and five. The Nuggets had a bad game, role players did bad, Jamal Murray did bad, or didn't do as well as he should have. They come back in game three and four and what I'm saying is Jamal Samari had a slow start. I know he had some big moments, dunking on Max Drews, hitting a three, but he didn't have the game that we all know he can have. And I think that also partially comes from Nikola Jokic. I agree with what Spo said on him. I think he says earlier in the press conference that, like, you can't really can't make him into a score-first player. Um, I, I think Ramona Shelburne or Sherburn or whatever um, was like... Can, this is like the book that has been out on Nikola Jokic. And he's like, that's ridiculous. That doesn't really make sense. Um, I mean, I agree with the stat. He's 0-3, right, in games where he's 40-plus points. So, I don't know. It's a, I think that's a wash. I think he, uh, Nikola Jokic is one of the smartest players in basketball, and I have faith in him to figure it out. So, I think he has a big game. I think Jamal Murray has a big game. I think the role players start to show up, Nuggets in five. Okay. So, Karna is truly doubling down. I'm going to be wrong, but I'm still Nuggets in five. <laughs> I, I believe that Karna is telling you not to take his, his advice if you are going to the betting, betting markets. No, he does not make betting content. content. He he makes content content. Okay? He's out here for for the takes. Uh, but I do see what you're saying on – there are plenty of reasons to believe the Nuggets will still win this series. And – I'm going to go ahead and say I'm still picking them to win this series. But I have adjusted my prediction from Nuggets in 6 to Nuggets in 7. Um, here's the problem for the Heat. You said they played a perfect game, and I disagree. But they did play an excellent game. And they hit threes at an insane clip. They went 17-35 of 35 from 3. That's almost 49%. That's unsustainable. And when, you know, when you see Max Struess going 4 for 10, you're like, okay, that's reasonable. But Gabe Vincent going 4 for 6, Duncan Robinson going 2 for 3, Kyle Lowry going 2 for 3, Jimmy Butler, who doesn't even really like to take threes, going 2 for 5. Like, they got efficiency from places you wouldn't expect it. They got volume from places you wouldn't expect it. And they're going to have to continue doing that because – they only attempted 13% of their shots at the rim, even in a successful game two. The Nuggets attempted 26% of their shots at the rim. And we've talked at length about how the Nuggets are just the bigger team, plain and simple, and how that presents major, perhaps unsolvable problems for the Heat. Well, they showed us how to solve them. It's go nuclear from three. But do I expect them to be able to do that four times in a seven-game series? I don't think so. I just wouldn't want to bet against the Heat, you know, literally betting or just in terms of picking against them because this run they've been on, 
it's defying all math, defying all logic. This team was one of the worst in the league at three-point shooting in the regular season, and now they've turned into the Golden State Warriors B2. You know, it's it's crazy what they're doing, not just, you know, from Jimmy Butler, who's not even really a three-point shooter, but getting a bunch of undrafted guys who, as I mentioned, are got four guys combining for nine threes a game at, at ridiculous efficiency. So the, the Nuggets also have a math problem here, and that is the Heat are going to take more threes. And when they make them, that's, that's tough for the Nuggets, who shot the ball well. They were over 50% from the field in game two, and yet they lose because they're not taking as many f- from three. Um, the two guys who need to step up are both guys you mentioned, and that's KCP and MPJ. As you said, six points for KCP, five points for MPJ on combined three of 12 shooting. And as I as I pointed out, or as a lot of people pointed out on Twitter and as I put in our podcast planning doc, if there's one guy who could lose the series for the Nuggets, it is MPJ. Karna, did you see the screen grab of him taking a contested mid-range jumper from the free throw line when there were not one, not two, but three Denver Nuggets standing wide open under the basket? He's forcing it. He's he is. He, he, he wants to be something more than a role player. I was going to comment when you said he's a role player earlier. I'm like, I'm not sure Michael Porter Jr. would consider himself a role player. And that's the problem, that if he has more games like this where he's trying to be on the level of Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic, but he just doesn't have it on that particular day, he could shoot them out of games. But long story short, it's honestly been a long story already. Jokic is going to figure out the zone. They already scored, the Denver Nuggets already scored at an elite rate of 125.6 points per possession in game two. It took an absolutely insane fourth quarter for the Heat to win by three. The wild card here is Jimmy Butler. Like, he hasn't had a great game yet. He's kind of looking timid in the paint. He's not going up strong. If his pump fake doesn't work, it seems like he's running out of options. But if he plays like he did in the fourth quarter and he plays like he did earlier in this playoffs, then maybe the Heat can pull a stunner. But if not, I see the Heat getting a couple games in Miami, but ultimately the Nuggets win in seven. And gosh, I hope, not that the Nuggets win, I don't care who wins, but I hope we get a seven-game series because that would be absolutely yeah. incredible. Yeah, I just wanted to let you in on some breaking news from my brother. Um, so he has some analysis for us. He says Murray needs to step up, agreed. He, his official prediction is the Nuggets take game three, but here's the kicker. Malone is the best coach in the NBA. What do you think? I think I don't think you agree, right? I, I, I do not disagree because I already told you who it is. It's Spo. Is there a number two? I mean, well, obviously Greg Popovich is still no, coaching, I, so so he's yeah. number two. Well, I think Popovich is the best coach. Historically, opinion, absolutely. Probably the best coach of all time. So when we say Spoh is the best coach of, all t- of, of the NBA right now, we don't mean his, his resume stands up to Pop or that he's the basketball mind that Pop is for historically. But just at this point, who would you want leading yeah, your team? The, I would the, take The game Spoh. has changed. I, I think Mike Malone is the second. I, I think they're the best two coaches in the NBA or in the series. Yeah. I mean, if someone said, like, another name, like – I like I can't really think of anyone else like Steve Kerr. Udoka would have been there maybe I guess, um, I mean I I think it's one of those two guys, but um, Steve, what about Steve Kerr? Kind of, 
one one thing I want to kind of say about the series as it progresses, I agree with you. I think Jimmy Butler's the X factor on on where the series definitely hinges. That being said, I, I think one thing that we want to kind of talk about is what Nikola Jokic's Game 3 looks like. What do you think his stat line looks like coming into Game 3? Because one thing that really, really stood out about his um, Game uh, 2 stat line is four assists, right? This guy's a generationally great passer, right? And he only has four assists coming out of the game. And I know we are blasé. Oh, the 10, 10 assists game for Nikola Jokic? I can't believe it wasn't 15. Like, I know that's how we think about him. And there was flashes of that. I mean, that touch pass to Aaron Gordon was insane. But um, what do you th- what do you think the Heat are able to continue? Whether or not you agree with this, and whether or not there's a conversation within the Heat coaching staff about it, do you think Nikola Jokic has a similar stat line? Ton of points, ton of rebounds because he's just tall and big and strong. Not very many assists. Or do you think Malone is able to kind of adjust to the current environment, get Nikola Jokic in a spot where he's affecting the game? Uh, in more ways than just um, kind of posting up and making shot tough shots. Yeah, when when Eric Spolster said what he said in response to the Nuggets being 0-3 this playoffs when Jokic scores 40 or more, I'm not sure if he wasn't kind of just throwing us off the scent. Um, because I get what he's saying, like, it's the untrained eye that, that says you can turn Jokic into a scorer, not a passer. But, like... You didn't double him as much as you did in game one. And you did utilize the zone effectively to, you know, let Jokic crash into the paint, but but his his windows for, for where to get it to his teammates are tighter, and they're different. Um, so it is clear that on the pendulum of letting Jokic beat us with his passing or let, us beat, let him beat us with his scoring, they lean more towards the let him beat us with his scoring and in terms of getting a win, it worked. So I expect that Jokic is going to come into game three with the mindset of, I'm going to get Michael Porter Jr., Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Bruce Brown, and the rest of my guys going. Like, Jamal Murray, he already has it going. And I did think it it was ridiculous, the chemistry that they demonstrated down the stretch of game two, when Jokic got Murray a couple great looks at three um, that nearly brought them back in the game. Um, th- those two guys play off each other extremely well. But Jokic's brilliance is in bringing Aaron Gordon to the fold and, and those other three guys I mentioned, getting them shots, not just open shots, but open shots where they like them. Um, and that's definitely going to be a concerted effort. He is the best processor. It's a, a fancy NBA term that you know you see in other podcasts, other articles, but I think it's a great way to describe his brilliance. He's the best processor we have in the game today. His ability yeah. to see a defense, figure out how to attack it. And man, I mean, even in game two, they were getting good shots every time down. It just happened to be that those good shots came from him more often than not. Why that works versus letting him pass, I don't know what it is. Is it the volume of three pointers they take? Is it the lack of confidence the other guys have? Maybe that's not, uh, that's leading to less effort on defense. I'm not sure if it's if there's really any correlation, but um, if I was the Heat, I'd definitely try to get Jokic to to be a scorer and not a passer, even if Spolster says that's only what an untrained eye would say. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of see what you're saying. You're saying that Jokic is, if you make him score first, it reduces the efficiency and the rhythm of the team, of the Nuggets. And I could see that, but it's hard to really justify making someone who's the greatest processor maybe we've seen since LeBron into a, a dynamic play or one-dimensional player more than once, right? Especially yeah. if he has a coaching staff that we think he does. Um, I, I think he's going to come out in game three and have a big game. But this is what I'm going to say. I don't think this series hinges on Nikola Jokic. I think he's going to do what he's going to do. He's going to be a star. The, I think the series also, like you said, MPJ can lose the series for the Nuggets. Murray has to have a big game next game. 18 points after scoring 37, 37, 25, 26. Right? The guys can fill He can fill it up, and he needs to fill it up. 18 is just not enough. He had some big moments in the game. He needs volume from a scoring perspective. And if he doesn't have that volume, the Nuggets will not win game three and game four. I think they'll wow. still win the series in a lot of ways. Like, I still think they can win the series without Jamal Murray just because how dominant Nikola Jokic can be. But if my game five prediction is coming through, I need Jamal Murray to step up, like my brother said. So, um, yeah, I, I think... I think that's it for uh, the NBA Finals, though. Hey, King, anything else to add before we move on to some some fun trades? Yeah, the the last thing I'll say is I, I I agree with your point that Jamal Murray has a bigger impact in terms of an X factor in this series mm-hmm. because Jokic, I don't think he's going to have a bad game in the finals. He's not. He's going to be there every time. The question is, does he have a true co-star, or does is Jamal Murray like? A great shooting role player and I think the Jamal Murray of the first three rounds of the playoffs and even game one of this final series is top 15 20 guy in the NBA and if Jamal Murray is close to or better than Jimmy Butler in this series the Heat don't stand a chance and so I I do think that the Jamal Murray is going to be a huge X factor and on the other side, I do expect a huge game from Jimmy Butler in Game 3. It's it's going to come eventually. You know, now he's had a few days of extended rest um, leading into um, what will be Wednesday's Game 3. I don't know if he's going to be able to keep it up for the whole series, but Jimmy Butler's going to have one of those games in Game 3. I agree. Um, so let's... Let's move on to some trades. I got one for you. It's a guy that I kind of forgot about. And then I was like, I wonder what he's up to. What's what's he doing right now? Scary Terry. Terry Rozier. This season, average, played 63 games. Averaged 21 points and 5 assists. On 33% three-point shooting. Not the best, but decently effective uh, about 50% from the field or sorry that that was uh, on game stat but I want a package for him let's say John Morant's out we need a starting point guard or a guy who can carry the load for at least for a little while and then be flexible as a backup point guard after right I'm giving up Brandon Clark probably have to give up Luke Kennard and let's stop it there. What do you think about that trade? I'm denying it flat out. Okay, I'm not why? continuing this phone call beyond five seconds. 
Okay, Why? so so you can tell me the trade, and then if I'm Zach Kleiman, I'm immediately hanging up. Okay. Sure, Terry Rozier scored 21 points a game this season. That's great. But those were counting stats on a bad team. He shot 41.5% from the field. That's in Dylan Brooks' territory. He's a 6'1 guard who's not offering you much defensively. He's already 29, so it's not like you're adding another young piece to your core. I, I like what he would provide you off the bench as uh, as a six-man or as a backup point guard. Um, but you're ultimately thinking about building your roster for the playoffs, right? And John Morant's absence should not factor in too much to your roster-making decisions this offseason because, yeah, you might struggle in the first half of the season, but we've seen enough from Tyus Jones as a starter that you think you'll be able to stay in the playoff race and then once the playoffs come around, you don't want Tyus Jones, John Morant, and Terry Rozier on your roster. You don't need three small guards. Oh, this is this is under the assumption that we lose Tyus Jones, that we trade him for something else. Okay, okay. If, if yeah. you traded Tyus Jones for something else, sorry, and you're like, sorry. we I, I need... I forgot to mention, Tyus Jones is gone in this scenario. Okay. Yeah, because Tyus Jones is your biggest trade chip. We know that w- between his contract, the fact it's a one-year expiring contract... And the fact that he fills a need of so many teams, solid point guard play, that yes, he did might I say get Brandon traded. Clark? You did. Uh, oh no! Sorry, I, I wrote Brandon Clark. I meant Tyus Jones. Sorry, I meant Tyus Jones, Luke Kennard. Okay, I just don't like giving up those. Like those two guys combined are better than Terry Rozier. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I figured you'd say that, so I have an addendum. Okay. Okay. So instead of Luke Kennard, we give him Santi Aldama. So, Tyus Jones and Santi Aldama for Terry Rozier. Yeah. I at least have to listen to that. Um, I'm still saying no because he doesn't fill a true need on your team beyond John Morant's absence. Obviously, for that period, he would be a great addition to your backcourt rotation. But if you're talking about building a team out for next postseason and then the three to five years after that, I don't think he's going to be a part of your plan. So, I like the idea but I am saying strongly no. Yeah, I, I, I just thought, okay, so this is my was my thought process. He was a guy who stepped in. First of all, I agree. I would not have taken the trade that I proposed um, in any respect because the marginal gain that you get from giving up Tyus Jones is very little. Like the marginal gain that you get from Terry Rozier, even if you did a one-for-one one trade, is so little. Um I think, yeah, I think it's a ridiculous trade, if you, especially if you add another piece now, right? That being said, I think that to not make a decision based off of Tyus Jones' perf- uh, performance in the playoffs is also not advantageous for the uh, Grizzlies' front office. And that was kind of the point of the trade, was pointing Fair. out that there's a substantive disconnect between how Tyus Jones plays in the regular season and how he plays even in the just the backup position in general versus how he can play. Um, so I, I think that there's something to be said about exploring options outside of Tyus Jones. Terra Zero is just the first one that came to mind because I was just curious about him recently and I saw the counting stats were high. Obviously, that's largely because he was their main point guard for most of the season because he um, Lamella was out with a high ankle sprain. So I would just wanted to see your thoughts on on exploring options outside of Tyus Jones. Is there anyone in the league that you would? I mean, obviously, 
they're also another reason I want to get like OG Ananobi, Fred Flynn, Van Vliet. Like a lot of these guys are talked about a lot when Grizzlies trade. I just want to throw out like a weird name and see. Oh, I appreciate. I appreciate that, but I did just pull up Terry Rozier's playoff stats, and let's talk about just uh, his. Let's oh, let's talk about his 2019 playoff run, where in two series with Boston, here are his scoring outputs: five, four, nine, eleven, eleven, nine, zero, two, seven. Is he not the backup point guard in that in that scenario? Isn't he like a deep role player in those scenarios? He is, but I'm just saying that I don't think it's fair oh, to I, say yeah. Tyus Jones isn't a playoff performer when, you know, Terry Rozier went, let's just look at the shooting percentages, one of six, two of five, two of seven, four of six, good, four of I mean, eight, okay, two of ten, really small. zero of yeah. three, okay. one of five, three of nine. Really I mean, you're it talking is. about two series, right? No, I'm not being totally fair to him, but I am saying that I don't think he substitutes. Wait, but we're talking about two series, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think he's substantively I, I better. I don't think he's substantively better than Tyus Jones alone, let alone Tyus Jones. I agree. Jones I, I plus said that. Luke I don't think the marginal gain that you get from Tyus Jones is worth the trade, even one for one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but I, so. I like I like bringing in a guy that we don't talk about. Let's bring in a guy we do talk about. So I got two trades for you, Carter. The first one is going to be what I would say the not so crazy trade. Okay. The All second right. of one is going to be a totally bonkers trade that I well we'll get there. Okay, first trade, not so crazy one. Lou Kennard, Brandon Clark, Zaire Williams, Santi Aldama, and three first round picks for Pascal Siakam. What do you think? And I think it's the finance person in me that doesn't like giving up first round picks, where it's like mm. these are future assets and we we don't know what they're going to be. Um, so the, the way to think about this, a big part of this trade is what does Brandon Clark look like after an Achilles tear? That's yeah. going to be a huge part of evaluating whether this trade works for the Grizzlies. Can he come back to something that he was before? Then we're, I think we're overpaying a little bit. Because Pascal Siakam, I, I'm always terrible with people's age, but he's nearing 30, right? He's 29. Yes, Yep, he's yeah, 29. Yep. But he does so many different things, and he can really guard almost three through five, which is what the Grizzlies need. He can guard three through five effectively, especially if he puts on some weight. Um, you know what? I'm taking this trade because I don't think Brandon Clark comes back effectively next season, and we're in win-now mode. But three first-round picks is what gets me. Another way to evaluate this trade is what is Zaire Williams? We have no idea. So you're giving up a lot of the depth and the potential because Santi's also young. You're giving up a lot of these potential assets for a guy who's proven that he can win a championship and is a veteran presence relative to the rest of the NBA, I guess. Um, he's averaging, you know, we can talk about the points. We know he's a good player, right? He's averaging 24.2 points, you know, six assists. He can do a bunch of different things. Um, he's not going to really stretch the floor for you in a way that creates space for John Morant because he's not a great shooter. But he can pass, and he can rebound, and he can he generates offense. I mean, yeah, I, I would probably take this trade reluctantly, but I would take this trade. I wouldn't say it's a slam dunk, though. 
I, I am also taking it, and I agree with you that it's not a slam dunk. It would, it, it it would feel like an overpay at the time. You'd be gutting your depth and your future assets. This would be the all-in move that you only get one crack at. But I would do it because with Pascal Siakam, you would give yourself arguably the best starting lineup in the league. And you would be huge. And look at how size, just size alone, worked out for the Lakers in the first couple rounds, the Nuggets against the Lakers, how it's probably going to end up working out for the Nuggets against the Heat. Being a big team matters. Um, And being a big team with a skilled player like Siakam matters even more. As you said, he averaged 24.2 points, 5.8 assists, 7.8 rebounds last season. He's a really strong defensive rebounder. But that was on 48% shooting from the field. He's doing that efficiently. And yes, he's just 32% from three. But because he's such a good passer, he is going to improve your spacing because he's a secondary playmaker. What made Dylan Brooks so destructive to the Grizzlies' spacing was not just his inability to hit threes. It's that he couldn't do anything else. Look, Draymond hasn't been able to hit threes for his whole career. And teams have not guarded him. And it usually doesn't work out for them because he's an elite passer and an elite screener. He makes you pay for sagging off of him, not by shooting the ball, but by having clear passing lanes and by having the ability to just set crushing screens because he's roaming free. Siakam's not maybe setting those crushing screens, but he's making plays for his teammates and he's able to use that space to get to the basket where he's a great finisher. Okay, so he's an elite passer for his position. He's a rangy, not excellent defender, but again, he can take some of those tough assignments, like you said, those three through five assignments that Dylan Brooks once did. And so, given the opportunity to turn yourself into the best starting lineup in the league, even at the expense of four role players um, and three first round picks, I'm doing it. Okay. Yeah. Now, I think, I think one. If you could get them down to two first-round picks or yeah. even no first-round picks, then it's a slam dunk, right? Because you give yeah. the Raptors a lot as far as potential players, right? And and I think the way that they think about it is, okay, which one of these guys is going to fit in with Scotty Barnes? Because uh, he's the future of that franchise, right? So it's like, can you get away with two or one first-round pick to kind of elevate that trade into slam dunk status, I think is what... Yeah. If I'm the GM of the Memphis uh, of the Grizzlies, that's what I'm thinking. That's that's very fair. And another caveat I would possibly make to the trade is if they preferred Tyus Jones to Brandon Clark, um, it, for the oh, money okay, you kind of okay. have to have four of those players. But I, I'm a, I'm okay with that because I think you can find backcourt depth on the cheap, yeah. a la Gabe Vincent. Um, and Brandon Clark, I do expect that. Maybe not next year, but within a couple of years, he's going to come back and be a really, really strong player off the bench for you. But that brings us to our last part of the podcast, a crazy trade for you, Karna. So in recent weeks, there's been a fair amount of talk about Dame Lillard, his future in Portland. Is he happy there? Do the Blazers want to blow it up? Well, now things look a little bit different for the Portland Trail Blazers because of the lottery balls and the fact that they now have the opportunity um, with their their draft to potentially rebuild, but rebuild quickly and rebuild really, really strong. 
okay? So, so they have the number three draft pick, okay? And at that position, you're going to have either Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller. Either one would be a great place to, to start. Okay, that's that's that alone alongside Anthony Simons, alongside Shaden Sharp, you're building a nice young core. So maybe you want to truly lean into the young rebuild and trade Dame Lillard. All that to say, here's my trade for you, Karna. Dame Lillard and Jeremy Grant for John Morant, Tyus Jones, Luke Kennard, and Sire Williams. Tell me what you think. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, what you think I'm giving John Morant for D- Daniel Dane? No way, dude. Okay, I love good. Dane. Me neither. There's not a bigger Dane fan than me. I love him. I love. I like his music too, dude. I'll go as far as to say that. You, he, he's 33, man. Now I, I wouldn't even look at his injuries. Forget his injuries for a second. He's 33. I don't think, and this is gonna be maybe the more hot take part of this. I don't know if Dame can be the best player on a championship team. I think he can be alongside another star of equal, um, but of like equal status. But I don't think he can be the standalone big star on a team on a championship winning team. I don't think his game lends itself to that. I mean, he he shoots thirty seven four point four percent, which is oh, it's okay. I mean, he's a great shooter. No one's going to say he's not. But I don't think he's substantively, for what we're giving up, I don't think he substantively benefits the team and can carry the Grizzlies more than John Morant can to the NBA Finals. Um, So, no, I I don't. I mean, Jeremy Grant is cool. Yeah, he's 6'8". He can do a lot of different things, kind of like Pascal Siakam can. But I I, I just don't see it as a... um, no, I just I'm not taking this trade for those reasons. Damian Lillard, in my opinion, can cannot carry a franchise as well as John Morant can in this scenario at age 33, and Jeremy Grant is also not enough of a like throw-in player. I mean, he's not. He's a good player. He's not just like a random throw-in. He can substantively impact the basketball court. But for what you're giving up, it's John Morant, Luke Kennard, Zaire Williams, and even Tyus Jones as far as depth goes. Like you are. Dude, that's yeah, that's that's that would really be an eye-opening move. I would, we would have to have some words with the GM of the Memphis Grizzlies if he did this. I would cry if they made this move. So I'm glad you said no because I am also definitively saying no. I do think you're gonna see this trade rumor pop up. Not this maybe this particular package, but people talking about like, oh, maybe the Grizzlies are done with with job because of his off-court issues by the way they're not they're going to continue to stand by their guy as they should and of course the trailblazers are one of the few teams out there who have a star of similar caliber to jaw who might have a reason to trade him namely that they want to get younger um i think dame lillard has a very high likelihood of being traded this offseason if any package could possibly work out i don't really know who's going to be able to put together that package the grizzlies are a team that could and so they're going to be brought up um, but no, I would not do this. John Morant is a potentially generational player. His off-court issues look bad. Let's just be honest. But if a couple Instagram live videos are the worst thing he ever does in his life, um, I think he's going to be okay. And 
I still believe in him as the face of the franchise and the leader of the Memphis Grizzlies and the guy who, among really any star under 25, as we discussed last time, fits with this team, fits with alongside Desmond Bain and Jaron Jackson, and has the mentality of a guy to bring you to a championship. We can debate that at, at length later on, but Karna, if you're good, I think with the definitive no to this Dame Lillard trade, you good to wrap up? Let I, I swear, take 30 seconds to answer All right, this. go for it. Let me let me re- replace John Morant in this trade with Desmond Bain Ooh. and throw in however many first-round picks you think. How many first-round picks? Let's say two first-round picks. Let's start off at two first-round picks. Are you taking that trade? To get Jeremy Grant and Dame Lillard? Let's just say Dame for now. I'm saying no because you need Desmond Bain's defense, frankly. Like, the problem with Dame and okay. CJ in Portland was too small of a backcourt with neither one of them being a good enough defender to make up for that. Desmond Bain is not an elite defender, but he turned into a pretty darn good one this season. And without Dylan Brooks, he's going to be asked to take a bigger role on that end. You need somebody with decent size like Bain at 6'6". So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm saying no. I, I think you're, you're pausing a little bit more if you're the Grizzlies GM. If you if you Desmond Bain's on the cutting block rather than Jaw. You are. You're definitely pausing there, but I'm keeping my core three. John Morant, Desmond Bain, Jaron Jackson Jr. We're behind them. They're the three guys who are best positioned to bring Memphis to a championship. I just think we had to throw it out there with the rumors that are probably going to fly around about Dame wanting out of Portland, maybe the Grizzlies being upset with Ja. But they're going to stand by him, and even if it's a 40-game suspension, that's the meaningless first half of a regular season, and it's just one year in uh, a guy you've got locked down for, I believe, four more years after that. So... You know, they, they got plenty of time to put a team around John Morant. It's just that the window is now. And so while we don't want this Dame trade, we would love to see that Pascal Siakam trade. And with that, I agree. that'll do it for Hoops Royalty. Stay tuned for more Royal Hoops takes live from the 901. Please subscribe on YouTube. Likes, comments, five-star reviews. We love them all. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as well. And please, go out and follow us on social media, at HoopsRoyalty901 on Instagram and Twitter. We got some good stuff going out there. You'll be up to date with, with what's going on with the show. But as always, thank you for listening. Go Grizzlies and go Guardians.